0: Could the Empire State be among the first to introduce a single-payer health care system? Standing by to report our lead story this morning is Dennis Jones. Also on today's Monitor Monday, Walgreens is facing a whistleblower false claims act challenge. Vane Whistleblower, Attorney Mary Inman will have the latest news on that story. In another major story, the American Medical Association CPT Editorial Board has approved major changes in documentation and code selection for E&M codes. Shannon DeConda will offer perspective. Nancy Beckley has returned, and she will have the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Well, we begin this morning with more news on the extrapolation changes from CMS. Here again now with part two of her story is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel.
1: Thank you, Chuck. I had a question from my last uh, episode, and it had to do with whether extrapolation has to do with the dollar amount. And the answer is yes. Uh, The person who asked the question said that 500 claims with a one noncompliant is 0.2%. However, in my example i had said that the one non-compliant claim was $100 so that ends up making it 20% so so the answer if if you're wondering about extrapolation dollar amount does matter on another on another note the current well actually before january 2nd the approach to extrapolation employed by RACs was inconsistent and often statistically invalid. This results in drastically overstated overpayment findings that can bankrupt a physician practice. The method of extrapolation is often a major issue in appeals, requiring the appealing physician to hire a statistician to challenge the RACS method of extrapolation. When you hire a statistician, it's very important That you think about the price, how much that statistician is, the statistician's background, the CV, or the, you know, the background where his education was, how he can write his report or she, uh, and whether he or she gets clusters in the sample. The sample can be debunked by pointing out claims that are not Medicare or Medicaid paid. So for example, if a auditor uh, looks at 150 claims and four of them, or even one of them, is not Medicare or Medicaid paid, that entire sample is then invalid. Since January 2nd, 2019, the new rules define the universe differently in the past suppliers have argued that some of the claims or claim lines included in the universe are improperly included for purposes of extrapolation however the current medicare manual provides little to no additional guidance regarding the inclusion or exclusion of claims when conducting the statistical analysis the revised manual starting January 2, 2019, the universe includes all claim lines that meet the selection criteria. The sampling frame is the listing of sample units derived from the universe from which the sample is selected. However, in some cases, the universe may include items that are not utilized in the construction of the sample frame. This can happen for a number of reasons, including but not limited to some claim or claim lines are discovered to have been subject to a prior review. The definitions of the sample unit necessitates eliminating some claims or claim lines. Or some claim or claim lines are attributed to sample units for which there was no payment. By providing detailed criteria by which contractors should exclude certain claims from the universe or sample frame, the revised manual now provides suppliers with another means to argue against the validity of the extrapolation. There's also in the new manual changes resulting from appeals. As a challenge to an extrapolated overpayment determination, works its way through the administrative appeals process. Often, a number of claims are reversed from the initial determination. When this happens, the statistical extrapolation must be revised. And now, according to the new manual, the Medicare contractors have to consult with a statistical expert in reviewing that methodology and adjusting the extrapolated overpayment amount. That's just a few more examples of the new rules that started again January 2nd, 2019. Back to you, Chuck.
0: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And here now with the latest hot topics is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Welcome back.
2: Thank you very much. And I spent last week on the road doing uh, therapy clinics compliance reviews, which is what I do. Therapy continues under review. And this past week, I heard from two of our listeners in the Naridian JF and JE jurisdictions. One provider was facility-based. The other provider was private practice. So what's Naridian probing? For one, the provider that with the TPE related to increased utilization of a specific therapy code. In other words, the analytics were based on their own data. You did this much last year, and now you did much this year, so you're on the radar. Their compliance officer indicated to me that this was not unexpected after a change in how they were documenting for their services and then eventually putting the codes on the claim. The other provider received notices, and this is private practice, for two specific different therapists for use of the aquatic therapy code, actually stating that they were, you know, in a certain high percentage. Well, obviously, if you have a pool and your patients are in aquatic therapy, you're going to rank higher than almost anybody else in your state. So it, so we have two examples here of what Meridian's probing on, taking somebody's own data and then another one is comparing you against the universe. Under review, however, what we know in therapy and confirmed in all of my TPE reports that I've been doing on therapy, it's really not about the code that they're probing in therapy, but the plan of care. So for all therapy providers, pay attention, no matter what code they're probing, All the denials seem to happen, as I've reported, with errors in the plan of care, the certification of the plan of care, and compliance with all the elements of the condition
0: of payment. Thanks very much. That was Monitor Monday, senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. And coming up in about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman, Shannon DeConda, and Dennis Jones. This is Monday. It's March 18th. You're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Accomplish big things in little time. AHIMA's on-demand coding webinars offer timely, flexible solutions to keep pace with the rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Walk away with new knowledge and know-how. All you need is an hour. AHIMA's 2019 coding webinars cover topics like ABCs of E&M, HCCs, the what, the why, and the how. Simplify MACRA, MIPS, and the APMs for HIM, ED infusion, and injection coding, plus other topics. Visit ahemastore.org to browse all topics. You've been hearing us talk about the Rack Monitor webcast portal. You know, that's where you can listen to 50 compliance webcasts when you subscribe, of course, to the Rack Monitor webcast series. Plus, now you can test drive the webcast portal with a three-day free trial for details click on the handout tab in today's monitor monday now for the monitor monday risky business segment here is healthcare attorney david glazer david what could be risky this morning good morning chuck so i want to mention two upcoming events and then one surprisingly
3: risky thing so first, we're having a broadcast on March, 21st, uh, March 28th, uh, one thirty Eastern, that focuses on Medicare Advantage plans and private insurance contracts. We'll be addressing questions like, do Medicare Advantage plans have to follow Incident 2 rules, and how far back can a private insurer go during an audit? Uh, you can look for information under the Handouts tab. And I have a favor to ask our listeners. We want to make sure we address the most pressing questions you have. So if you have a question, whether it's about interacting with Medicare Advantage or private insurance plans, please feel free to shoot me an email or you can even type it in in the questions uh, to put at the beginning of it, Glazer webcast, either in the subject line or at the start of the question. Uh, Then sign up to hear the answers. So later this week, I'm lucky enough to be presenting at the AHLA Medicare and Medicaid conference. Aaron uh, Romaya and, uh, from Wachler and & Associates and I will be on a panel with Judge Griswold. If you've ever had an ALJ appeal with a number of different claims, you likely know how difficult it can be to present the information cogently during a telephone hearing. We'll be asking Judge Griswold for tips, um, so both so that we can make the judge's life easier and improve our presentations. If you're in Baltimore, come up and say Hi. If you aren't, we'll report on the tips on an upcoming broadcast. Finally, if you've got a good question for the judge, she's super gracious about answering them, so feel free to shoot me an email sometime today or tomorrow. Finally, what's risky? Well, this is the surprising one, using Google to find the law. Now, I like Google as much as the next guy, but I wanna share a personal experience that I hope will burn into your brain. So I was recently helping a client determine the certification requirements for a particular service. I wasn't logged in to our fancy service that has all of the uh, latest regulations. But I knew the regulation number, so I Googled it. Uh, I wound up at an official government EFR site, or ECFR site, sorry, and began my analysis. But something didn't seem right. The regulation wasn't reading the way I remembered it. So I checked. I really was in an official government site. I went down to the bottom of the uh, regulation where you usually can see the history of how uh, laws have been updated or regulations have been updated. I knew there had been an update in the physician fee schedule, but that update wasn't listed. I was looking at an old version of the regulation on what I would have sworn was an official, safe government website. Now, I don't know if the problem was the site, my internet cache, or operator error. I just know I was looking at the wrong rule and was basically saved by the good fortune that I happened to know about a recent change in the text. Uh, A New Yorker cartoon famously observed that on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. Similarly, when you're on the Internet, you may think you are being dogged, but it can be hard to tell whether the information you're reviewing is actually dog excrement. So, Chuck, I was trying to come up with a song, and I can't in good conscience go with Who Let the Dogs Out?, And it turns out there's a serious dearth of dog ditties. I don't feel like a hound dog, but I do recall, and I would live near, if they actually existed, the wheat fields of St. Paul. So I'm going to go with an old 70s song. I think it's from 1971. Lobo, Me and You and a Dog Named Boo. But to be clear, Chuck, I've never robbed from an old hen.
0: I can still to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Frederickton Byron in downtown Minneapolis. David, thanks again very much. The American Medical Association CPT Editorial Board has approved major changes to document and code selection guidelines for E&M codes. Here now is Shannon DeConta with a perspective. Good morning, Shannon.
4: Good morning, Chuck, and thank you again for having me on the broadcast. Um, last week, many of our inboxes pinged with the delivery of an article about E&M information published by the AMA, or maybe you read an article written regarding the AMA proposed updates. I got such a ping, along with many other emails of concern from fellow coders and auditors regarding it, and I bookmarked it in my browser. However, I wasn't smart enough to print it to PDF because the article became no longer available through that link. Sure, you can access great articles about it, but to include the details that the AMA had, there was no access. So the question starts swirling around in my head, along with probably many others, is why is it no longer available? Well, we will say that there were certainly some rules and comments that didn't seem fully developed, so maybe it was a premature launch. For example, the beginning identified AMA's decision to delete 99201. Big whoop. No one really uses that code anyway, except when we're downcoding a provider. So no earth-shattering news. However, in that same area, it also um, showed the codes 99202 through 99215, and it itemized new codes, 99206 through 99210, but it had revision triangles in front of it. Okay, what are we to make of this? Was there going to be a new code set? Well, sure enough, the document was re-released on March 15th, with a revision to that document now showing that that was apparently a typo. So just a note, if you're using your previously cached in your browser access to that document, it won't work anymore. You can email me or contact Monitor Monday for a direct access link. If you go to the AMA's webpage, web you can actually find it. So I was actually supposed to spend my segment breaking this information down. However, if you've heard me present before, you know I've said a thousand times if I can't cite and source something, it's really hard for me to give you my opinion without telling you everything about it is my opinion. Until literally two minutes ago when I accessed that, that page through the AMA website, while waiting on the broadcast to start. Therefore, I still feel a little challenged to speak to those changes, but I'm going to kind of put everything in a nutshell. And later this week, through the graces of Chuck and Monitor Monday, I will be releasing an article going through everything in detail. The nutshell is it seems AMA is working quickly to try to get in front of the CMS and E&M proposed changes for 2021. What does this mean? I, along with many of you, thought this might be an issue that was punted around for several times like the ICD-10, but with AMA's involvement, it Will more than likely not be that way. The document includes instructional guidance of how we would now choose the CPT codes, as well as an announcement of new guidelines for outpatient office codes, changes to the titles of the three components of medical decision making, and changes to the definition of time and time thresholds. Once this information is redistributed and you're able to look at it, we'll be able to give a little bit more of some details on that synopsis. We should consider how best to prepare for the changes. We now know for pretty certain changes are coming. Yes, it's hard when we don't know all the changes, but we didn't know all of the changes that were coming with I-10 and the exact codes either, but we were still able to start educating and preparing. I believe there's a positive point here, if AMA is getting involved in making changes to the code sets, then a good news element would be that the guidelines will be applicable to all carriers. While this is a bit of a double-edged sword, it will alleviate the administrative burden of our providers having to know who the carrier is before they go in the room with the patient, as we weren't sure if the other carriers were going to adapt the same changes at CMS. It's a very interesting time to be in healthcare right now. We've seen the implementation of some of the most aggressive carrier audits, ICD-10 implementation, a paper chart taking on electronic access with having patients have access to their charts, and now after 24 years, changes to E&M. We must stay diligent, informed, engaged, and keep our ear to the ground. And right here on the broadcast is a great place for that. Don't you agree, Chuck?
0: I do agree. And thank you very much, Shannon, for being with us today. Shannon DeConda. Shannon is the founder and the president of the National Alliance of Medical Coding Specialists. We know them, of course, as Names. Thanks again, Shannon. Walgreens is facing a whistleblower false claims act challenge Famed whistleblower attorney, Mary Inman, is standing by with that live report. Good morning, Mary.
5: Good morning, Chuck. In 2013, J. Douglas Strouser, a pharmacist, filed a whistleblower lawsuit against Stephen L. LaFrance Holdings, Inc. and Walgreens, alleging that they overcharged Medicaid for generic drugs by not giving the government the best price. Stephen L. LaFrance Holdings was the owner and operator of a pharmacy chain in seven states that was purchased by Walgreens in 2012 for over $400 million. A few pharmacies that were not acquired by Walgreens are also defendants in the whistleblower suit. According to the complaint, the pharmacies were offering cash-paying customers generic drugs for $4 but charged Medicaid higher prices for the same drugs. This program was allegedly set up to compete with Walmart's $4 generic drug pricing for 30-day supplies of common medications, but it only applied to customers who were not insured. However, Walmart charged Medicaid the same price that it charged these customers. Medicaid bases the amount it pays for drugs on usual and customary prices reported by pharmacies. The suit alleges that the rate is commonly understood in the industry to mean the price that cash-paying customers pay for drugs. According to the complaint, the pharmacies were instructed not to advertise the program in fear of getting detected by state regulators. Much of the conduct occurred prior to Walgreens' acquisition of the pharmacies. The practice ended when Walgreens converted the acquired pharmacies onto a new software system, which informed Medicaid programs of the low prices offered to uninsured customers. Last year, the government and states involved declined to intervene in the whistleblower suit, and various defendants quickly filed motions to dismiss against the whistleblower, who chose to continue litigating his claims without the Department of Justice. On March 7th, whistleblower Strauser defeated the motions to dismiss when a federal judge allowed his case to move forward. In denying the motions, the court noted six other lawsuits with nearly identical allegations that all survived such motions. The court also dispatched the defendant's argument that usual and customary is an ambiguous phrase open to interpretation, calling the defense argument in tension with the plain meaning of words. The case now moves into discovery, and we will keep Monitor Monday listeners posted on future developments. This case is an excellent example of how whistleblower incentive programs like the KETAM provisions of the False Claims Act can attract extremely qualified and credible persons to file suit on the government's behalf. J. Douglas Strouser, the whistleblower, was a pharmacist for almost 40 years before he filed the whistleblower suit. He operated several of his own pharmacies, selling the last pharmacy he operated to one of the defendants in 2008. According to the complaint, Mr. Strouser pointed out the alleged fraud to several executives in dozens of conversations before filing this suit. He has also founded a disaster relief charitable organization, served as the mayor of his Missouri town acted as school board president for over a decade and is on the board of directors of a local bank the expertise whistleblower strouser brought to the case is obvious from a review of the complaint and a survival of the motions to dismiss we'll keep you posted as this case proceeds back to you chuck
0: thanks mary very much that was famed whistleblower attorney mary inman mary was calling in live from london where she's a partner in the london law office of Constantine Cannon. Could the Empire State be among the first to introduce a single-payer health care system? Dennis Jones joins us now to report our lead story this
6: morning. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you very much. If you've read recent headlines, you may feel that the single-payer health plan or Medicare for all system uh, may soon be a reality in New York State, or will it? The speculation about the single-payer health plan in, uh, in New York is fueled by the Democratic Party's November victory in the state Senate election. The New York Assembly has passed the New York Health Plan, a single-payer health plan bill, a number of times in past years, but the bill could never pass in the state's upper house. Swept up in November's blue-wave election, New York's state Senate is now under the control of Democrats. Many see the election as a mandate to fix our broken health care system. Well, now what? The New York Health Act is summarized as a Medicare-for-all plan, and it obviously seems like a great idea to many. However, many others are not in favor and have tagged the single-payer health plan with the dreaded moniker of socialized medicine. There is no argument that our current payment system for healthcare puts a serious financial strain on New Yorkers as they struggle to pay for their health insurance premiums, out-of-pocket costs for their family's acute care services, drugs, medication, and long-term care for themselves or or their parents. The high cost of care bankrupts some family some families, and forces others to forego needed care that they feel they cannot afford. There are one million New Yorkers who still do not have health insurance, and as many as 2,000 New Yorkers per year have died due to their lack of coverage in the last 10 years. However, the New York Health Act is not about the uninsured, says New York State Congressman Richard Gottfried. I'm sorry, that's Gottfried who has sponsored some version of the New York Health Act in the New York State Assembly since 1992. It's about the rest of us. The New York Health Act would create universal, complete health coverage for every New York resident without premiums, deductibles, copays, pays or restricted provider networks, according to Gottfried. It sounds too good to be true. According to State Senator Gustavo Rivera, who is the Senate sponsor of the New York Health Act, The New York Health Act is the only option on the table that would provide comprehensive health coverage to all New Yorkers. It would extend coverage to those who currently have no access while providing quality and comprehensive care to New Yorkers who have been traditionally uninsured. But the near-term future of the New York Health Act is still uncertain, even with the state Senate under Democratic control and with a popular Democratic governor. I'm sure you know why. This global coverage comes at a high cost. Nationally, Medicare for All would increase the federal budget commitments by approximately $32.6 trillion during its first 10 years of full implementation. The implementation of just New York State is about $1.5 trillion over 10 years. Yes, that's trillion with a T. This would require an estimated 160% tax increase by 2022. Supporters of the New York Health Act say these estimates are inflated and that savings inherent in the one-payer system would offset costs and there are actually significant overall savings to the plan. But this is where the logic of the Medicare for All plan begins to lose some of its health industry support. Proponents of the New York Health Act that predict overall savings base their figures on eliminating corporate profits and lessening administrative burdens like authorizations and denials for service. Nothing controversial here but they depend heavily on decreasing reimbursement for drugs and reimbursing providers at Medicare rates. Yikes. In short, this means giving all providers a cut of about 40% of net revenues. These low Medicare rates, which are currently offset by the higher rates paid by commercial payers, would be ruinous for hospitals. Closures would be even more widespread than they are now at a time when universal coverage creates increased demand. Consequently, the AHA has come out strongly against federal Medicare for All plans in the past. While we see if New York's uh, Senate passes the New York Health Act, and if Governor Cuomo would veto the bill and hand off the whole issue to the federal government after the 2020 elections, we can keep an eye on the city of Seattle, where a similar bill has been introduced for a citywide Medicare for All system. Up in the Emerald City of Seattle, the community and politicians don't faint at the thought of being called socialists. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dennis, very much. That was Dennis Jones. Dennis
0: is a New Yorker, and he is the administrator of patient financial services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. David, let's take a look at the questions that came in this morning. There's a question from Sandra. Sandra wants to
3: ask Nicole a question. Hey, Nicole, can you repeat the manual section that was revised?
1: It's the CMS Change Request 10067, and it has a lot of changes. So I would really, really recommend that you Google the CMS Change Request 10067, and look at all the changes for extrapolation.
0: Thanks,
3: Nicole. And Shannon, one quick question for you. Is there anything that people have to do right now or are we in a bit of a wait and see on this?
4: Right now, we're in a wait and see. One thing that I would strongly recommend is it does appear the editorial panel would like our comments and feedback. So we should all really think thoughtfully through this process and be willing to submit some type of a feedback. Whether you agree or not, we should give feedback.
3: Thanks, Shannon. And just listeners, if you've got questions about Medicare Advantage or private pay for that March 28th webcast, please shoot. Chuck or me an email, and Chuck, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, David,
0: very much. And that's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Nicole Emanuel, Shannon DeConda, David Glazer, Mary Inman, calling in live from London, and Dennis Jones. And we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning, and we look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.